Here we are. Today, we begin a new series in the book of, or letter to the Hebrews. Yay! 13 chapters. So, uh, if you've been around at all, you know, sometime next year we'll be uh, finishing this. I I haven't planned it all out, so I'm going to sort of go as I go. But uh, we'll see. I chose this New Testament book for a number of reasons, but ultimately, I think because it offers uh, great benefits for Christians who are willing to hear and believe, respond to, obey uh, its message. Hebrews gives us an extensive, glorious description of the supremacy and the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, This book is about Jesus. I mean, the whole book's about Jesus, but Hebrews just makes it really clear. And along with this amazing picture of Christ, Hebrews continually demands a response from its readers. For example, at the end of chapter 4, there's a description of Jesus as the great high priest, our mediator before God. And in verse 16, our response is given. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Knowing Christ is our great high priest should motivate and encourage and inspire us to confidently draw near to God's throne to receive His His grace, His help, His mercy. And this pattern of seeing and knowing Christ's greatness and then allowing that knowledge to motivate us to respond is repeated throughout this powerful letter. And it's repeated, it's, it's written as instruction and encouragement to Christians who are experiencing or on the verge of experiencing suffering and persecution. The author calls his readers to focus not on themselves, not on their difficulties, not on the imminent threats that, that surround them, but on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. For example, in the beginning of chapter 12, we read, Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Life presents us with difficulties. We have a hard race to run. But we should look to, or as the NASB puts it, and I like it, fix our eyes on Jesus as our example of running the race of life with endurance. Because He, Jesus, endured His greatest trial, the cross, by focusing on the future joy His sacrifice would bring. So the author of Hebrews is seeking to encourage his readers to grow in their faith. And he does this primarily by again and again giving them a a glorious picture of Christ. And thus I've titled this series, Knowing, I thought about seeing, but knowing sort of captures it, knowing and then growing in Christ. Knowing Christ and growing in Christ. The more we know knowledge in our heads that moves into our hearts of Christ, the more we'll grow in our relationship with Him. And the more we grow in our relationship with Him, the more we glorify Him. And that, uh, my friends, 
is the goal of the Christian life, in case you're wondering. To know Christ, and by knowing Him, to grow to be more like Him, which ultimately brings Him glory. So I pray that our time in this letter to the Hebrews will accomplish this in our lives. And would you just join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for this time this morning where we could look at your word and we thank you for this this wonderful book that you've given to us, your word uh, to the Hebrews and to us, Father. And I just pray for myself and I pray for each person here that you would open our hearts to receive the message that you have for us in your word today and throughout the weeks to come through this book. Just be with us. Use us. Anything that I say is not of you, Lord, just let it pass on through. But the things that are from you, Father, let them stick in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Now, before we get to our text, covering a whopping verse and a half today, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2a, uh, before we get to the text, let me just say a few more words about the background of Hebrews. You know, if you don't care about backgrounds of books, you know, Take a little nap here, because we're going to get into some other stuff. I don't really recommend that, but no New Testament book has had more background research than Hebrews, and none has caused uh, so so many different opinions. However, there is agreement about some of the most important things. Based on the extensive references to the Old Testament, most agree that the recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians. Thus, the title to the Hebrews was given to it in the second century. Now, as I mentioned, the the text implies that the conversion of these Hebrews to Christianity brought with it hardship and persecution, probably from both their fellow Jews and then the the Romans. And this resulted in some, some of them leaving the faith, leaving Christianity, returning to Judaism. So the immediate purpose for writing Hebrews was to encourage its readers not to fall away, stand firm, to grow, to press on in their Christian faith. We see this in verses like chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So both the initial recipients, Jewish Christians, and the purpose of writing, encouragement to stand firm in your faith, facing persecution is fairly certain. But that's where the agreement certainty sort of ends. We don't know exactly when the letter was written, except sometime in the first century. We don't know exactly where the recipients were, were located. You know, most of the books, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, we know those are going to those cities, surrounding area. This one, we don't have that information. And most importantly, we don't know who the author is. Hebrews includes no explicit claim to authorship. It seems that this information was lost as the book was widely distributed early on. Early on in church history, the identity of the author was disputed even. The Eastern church thought the ideas were from Paul, but that the writer was one of his associates, someone associated with Paul. The Western church didn't accept Paul as the author, until widespread use in the East convinced them that it must be, have written, been written by an apostle, so they eventually concluded Paul was the author. However, Paul's authorship has been called into question uh, from the Reformation forward, and today very few scholars accept it was written by Paul 
himself. Why? Several reasons. Uh, the Greek style and its characteristic themes are quite different from Paul's. I mean, we have a lot of Paul's known writings, so we can compare those things. Also, in all his letters, Paul includes his name in the introduction. I, Paul, to you, Ephesians. or what? And in each one, it's, it's there every time. But there's no name given in Hebrews. And finally, at least one verse presents a major difficulty for Paul as the author. That's chapter 2, verse 3, which says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us, the author and his readers, by those who heard. Uh, This verse seems to indicate that the author received the gospel from those who heard it directly from the Lord. However, in Acts chapter 9, we read that Paul was confronted by Christ directly. And Galatians, in Galatians, Paul makes it clear, For I have, for I would have, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that has, was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So based on these and other facts, Paul as the author of Hebrews is uh, doubtful. Other potential authors have been suggested through the centuries. Luke, even though he was a Gentile, probably not. Barnabas, Clement of Rome, Apollos, Silas, Epaphras, Timothy. However, the evidence for these is so limited that there is little, uh, little more than just guesses. So, I would agree with the third century Christian origin who says, only God knows, certainly, who wrote this letter. And, and we're going to go with that. However, we do know who the author behind the author was. And this is the important thing. We know that this letter to the Hebrews, like the rest of God's Word, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This was confirmed by the early church when it was accepted as part of the canon of Scripture. And I believe it will be confirmed to us as we study its content. With its glorious revelation of Jesus Christ, it stands far and above the thoughts of any mere human author. And I don't believe it's a coincidence that this letter, whose human authorship has been and continues to be disputed, begins with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Unlike Paul and others, who began uh, each of their letters identifying themselves as the author. Hebrews begins by declaring the grand authorship, the, the speaking of God. It focuses not on the human author, but on God, the God who speaks. And that brings us to our first point this morning. So that's our text I just read for us. Verse 1 and 2a, God has spoken to us. Immediately, Hebrews declares that God is not silent. He's not distant. He's not far removed. He has chosen to reveal Himself. He has spoken to us. In the past, He spoke to our fathers, uh, which from a Jewish, the the Hebrew author of Hebrews, certainly a Jewish author's perspective, would talk be the patriarchs, the Jews, the Hebrews. And in these last days, He has spoken to us. He spoke and He continues to speak to humanity, to people like you and me. 
And I don't want us to miss the importance of this truth or the consequences of its rejection. Its importance, at least in part, is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Very famous verse, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word, what he speaks, has a powerful impact on those who hear it. And that will be a subject of much of our study through the book of Hebrews. How the Word of God, what God has spoken, impacts our lives. What it does in our hearts and minds. But I want us for a moment to see the consequences of rejecting God and His Word. Because they're all around us. Sort of a contemporary thought from what Hebrews says in this one and a half verses. We live in a post-Christian, post-modern post-Bible-believing, post-Bible-reading, relativistic age. In a 2020 survey, as many as 60% of Americans said they believe that moral truth, absolutes, are up to the individual to decide. Truth is relative. And this is precisely because uh, as a culture, we've rejected God's existence And therefore, His voice, His word, His moral authority in our lives. We no longer believe in absolute moral or absolute spiritual truth. We have, because we have no foundation for it, no authority for that truth. I thought about uh, reading Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. If you're familiar with it, you know that it clearly describes the tragic results of suppressing the truth and rejecting God. But because of time, I'm going to assign that as homework. Jot that down in your notes. I included the reference in the discussion questions at the end of your notes. Speaking of the discussion questions, let me mention I wrote these for uh, the women's small group. Woohoo! Yay, women's small group. Uh, I hear that the, that the young people might even, might even be using them. The young people group uh, would use them. And I'll continue to do this for anybody that wants to use them. You can use them in your small groups or uh, you can use them in personal study. I'll do it throughout our study of Hebrews. So take some time this week, back to Romans, to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. It aptly describes what takes place when God's authoritative voice is rejected. And it's eerily similar to what's taking place in our culture today. Not only is God not only is God being rejected, not only is the gospel of Jesus Christ being rejected, but one by one even the moral truths that God has spoken, truths that we we think or at least thought should be clear to everyone are being rejected. The truth that human life prior to birth should be protected is continually under attack. The truth that fornication, sex before marriage is wrong, is ignored and even laughed at by most in society. The truth that marriage is between a man and a woman is seen as outdated and mean-spirited. The biological and biblical truth of what defines a male and female is still held by the majority, but that's rapidly changing. 
A recent poll reveals that 65% of Americans believe there are only two gender identities, while 34%, that's a lot of people, say there are many gender identities. And those are just a few of the most prominent biblical moral truths that, that have or are being rejected by our society. I don't want to get uh, political, but I can't help but quoting one of my favorite presidents, uh, Ronald Reagan, who said 40 years ago, without God there is no virtue because there is no prompting of the conscience. Without God, we're mired in the material that flat world that tells us only what the senses perceive. Without God, there is a coarsening of the society. And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. And it seems to me we're fast approaching a godless nation and we're quickly going under. We as a culture have rejected God, we've rejected His spoken word, and now uh, believe truth is relative. We're told we, we can't really know what is right and wrong. We can't know that Jesus is the only way to be saved. We can't know anything really for certain. And you know what? I would totally agree with that, except for one uh, very important thing. God has spoken. God has revealed Himself. God has revealed His plan of salvation. If God had not spoken, there would be no way to know absolute moral truth. Who decides what's right and wrong? What are we left with? The rule of the majority, the mighty? Does might make right? That seems to be the way we're moving. We're moving away from biblical standards of morality and instead embracing standards dictated by those who can yell the loudest or gather the most votes. But do we ever consider, do we think about how the majority or the mighty have established morality in the past? What's the saying? If you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. We seem to be about that. How for centuries... The mighty conquered, enslaved, and silenced the weak minority. How the mighty in Nazi Germany conquered and exterminated millions. How the mighty in communist Russia, China, Cambodia, etc. Suppress, suppressed and suppress, murder those who oppose them. And we see it today in our own country. When according to Gallup's May 2023 Poll, that's just last year, 51% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal under certain circumstances, and 34% believe abortion should be legal under any circumstance. 85% believe it's okay, at least sometime, some anytime, to murder an unborn human being. These are just some of the consequences of rejecting God and his word. We haven't even talked about, these are just the earthly consequences. We haven't even mentioned the eternal consequences, the major important consequences for all eternity for rejecting God and his word. My point is that humanity in the past and in the present has absolutely no ability on their own to decide what is morally true, what is right and wrong, because the truth must be revealed to us by God. Job asks, can you find out the deep things of God? 
Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And the answer is no. By definition, God, His ways, His truth, His plan of salvation is not something we can know by ourselves. We need help. We need it to come in from outside. And that help has come to us through the God who speaks. God, in choosing to speak to us, not only gives us moral truth, clear standards of what is right and wrong, but He most importantly reveals Himself to us. He reveals His nature. He reveals His plan of salvation and so much more. God speaking means we can know what is true. We can know what is His will. We can know what's right and wrong from His perfect, timeless, true perspective. And we can know that He wants to have relationship with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's of utmost importance that we understand what Hebrews says in its very first sentence, God has spoken to us. And how has He spoken to us? Well, primarily, Hebrews tells us, God has spoken through His Word. That's our second point. I say primarily because if you remember uh, the Summer of Psalms, who was with us for the Summer of Psalms, one of the messages I gave was from Psalm 19, and it was titled, very similar to this week's message, it was titled, God Speaks. There we saw God speaking in two ways. In verses 1 and 2, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is what the theologians, what we talked about when we were uh, looking at Psalm 19, called general revelation. God speaks, not verbally, but clearly. He reveals His power and glory through His creation to all people everywhere. And then in Psalm 19, we saw the second way. Uh, in Psalm 19, verse 7, we saw the second way God speaks. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And this, we saw, is what theologians call special revelation. This refers specifically to God's Word, the Bible. God's Word reveals in great detail who He is. And it tells us how we're to relate to Him, how we can come to know Him, how, can we be, how we can be saved by Him, how we can grow in relationship with Him. And it's this special revelation through the Word of God that the author of Hebrews is referring to. In verses 1 and 2, again, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, just to be clear, in, in Jewish thought, the prophets include authors of both the prophetic and the historical books of the Old Testament. In other words, God spoke to our fathers in the Old Testament by the prophets. The Bible's books were written by human authors who spoke and wrote in human language. But the Bible insists that through them, God Himself spoke and speaks to us still. Peter explained Chapter 1, verse 21 of 2 Peter, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we refer to as the Bible's inspiration, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God has communicated to us through the Holy Spirit's leading of human authors. 
The point is not that these books contain the but but the point is not that these books contain the inspired insights of men. The point is the exact opposite. The Bible is God's word as from his very mouth given through the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of human servants. This is what Paul emphasizes in 2 Timothy 3:16 when he says all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture ultimately comes from God himself. Now, it's right to realize that human instruments, the, the human instruments God used to give different shape to different Bible books, Moses had his own experience and calling and personality and gifts, and God uses them to communicate particular message in the books that Moses wrote. Same is true of David, of Paul, of John, and all the other biblical writers. But while the Bible itself affirms this, it emphasizes its own divine authorship. God has spoken through His Word. And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, divides His speech into two categories. First, in time, God spoke by the prophets. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago... Many times, different times throughout history, in many ways, you know, if you study the different books of the Old Testament, they're written over an extended period of time by different kinds of people, historical narrative, prophecy, law, commands, poetry, proverbs. God spoke to our fathers many different ways, many different people by the prophets, Old Testament authors. The point is that at every time and in every way the fathers were spoken to by the prophets, it was, in fact, God speaking. It's not Moses who wrote Genesis. It's not David who wrote the Psalms. It's not Isaiah who wrote Isaiah. God spoke in the Bible first by the prophets. It's interesting that in Hebrews, which has many quotes from the Old Testament, we'll see that, whenever the writer cites Scripture... It's never the human author that gets the credit. It's always the divine author. We won't look at these passages, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, he cites Psalm 22, 22, and ascribes it to Jesus Christ speaking in the Old Testament. Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through, I mean 7 through 11, cites Psalm 95, but prefaces it not by saying, as David said, but as the Holy Spirit says. And this is seen throughout Hebrews. The point is not to deny the importance of the human authors, but to emphasize that ultimately it's God speaking through them in his word. So first, God spoke through the prophets. And then second, again, not in importance, but in time, God spoke by his son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These opening verses tell us not merely that God has spoken, but that his final and decisive revelation is in and through his son, Jesus Christ. The writer makes this clear by pointing, a three, he gives three contrasts in these verses. First, there is the when of the revelation. Long ago, in contrast to these, in these last days. Second, there is the to whom of revelation to our fathers and then to us. And then the third, there's the how of the revelation, namely at many times, in many ways, and then uh, by, by the prophets and then verses by his son. The author's point, which is made throughout the book of Hebrews, is to show the superiority 
of Christ and Christianity to the old covenant religion. The superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. He wastes no time getting to this point, arguing the supremacy of Christ over the prophets. The supremacy does not take away, let me be clear, from the Old Testament faith. Unlike uh, pagan religions or any other religion, uh, Judaism was a legitimate revelation and a true faith. In the Old Testament, God spoke, and it was a God-given true religion. Nonetheless, Christ is superior, and with His coming, there is now no excuse for reverting back to to Judaism. That's what he's telling these Hebrew Christians. The author describes former revelation as coming at many times and at many ways. His point is not merely that uh, there was a diversity of revelation in the Old Testament, but but his point is uh, this revelation is incomplete and it's gradual in nature. Take any book of the Old Testament. For example, Genesis with its description of creation, the fall, and redemption of Esther with her courageous faith in an unseen God, of Psalms with heart-lifting poetry and worship of God. And you'll read true divine revelation, even necessary revelation. But each book is incomplete. The Old Testament is unfulfilled. And the completion and fulfillment come only in Jesus Christ. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here Jesus states both the importance of the Old Testament. He had not come to abolish it. He wasn't throwing it out. It's true, divine, necessary revelation. But it's incomplete. He's come to fulfill it. By contrast, God's revelation in Christ is not partial or incomplete. This is seen in Christ uh, speaking in these last days. These last days do not refer to the end times, the final days, sometime in the future. It refers to the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. So it includes those final days, but it's that whole spectrum. Hebrews was written in these last days, in the first century, It was written for today, in these last days today, and if Christ doesn't return today, it was written for tomorrow, our last days as well. The point is, we're living in the final age, and Christ has spoken in this final age, and His words are the final revelation. Therefore, God's revelation has been made complete through Christ. Calvin comments, It was not a part of the word that Christ brought, but the last closing word. So we've seen that Christ is superior to the prophets because he completed, he fulfilled their words, and his word is the complete and final word. And by God's grace and the inspiration of the Spirit, what God's Son has spoken, his life, his teaching, an explanation of what he's accomplished and what what he would accomplish, recorded by his chosen apostles and those close to them, has been preserved for us in the New Testament. And since God has spoken finally and fully in the Son, and since the New Testament fully reports and interprets this revelation of God, the canon of Scripture is complete. No new books are needed to explain what God has done through his Son. We have it all 
from Christ. We have the final word of God through Christ. So we've seen that God has spoken through the prophets and finally and fully through His Son. That in the Bible, uh, we have recorded for us what God has said. We have, we can uh, actually hold with us, we can read the very Word of God. So what does that mean for us? What are the implications for our lives? Well, I hope there's some spinning around, reminding you of some. First, let's just establish that since we have the Bible to read today, since we have the Word of God, therefore through the Scripture, God continues to speak to us today. God has spoken in His Word, and He continues to speak to those who will pick it up and read it. And so if God speaks to us through His Word, then the first implication is the Bible has divine authority over our lives. The Bible is wholly different from any other book we read or instruction we receive. It's the Word of our Creator, our Lord and Savior, the God of the universe, and therefore it must be heard and it must be humbly obeyed. As we saw earlier today, many... Even some who call themselves Christians want to set aside the Bible's teaching when they collide with current cultural standards or values. For example, the Bible has a lot to say about the relationship between husbands and wives that uh, differ from what our current culture is promoting. Wives, subject. Submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, just to name a few. And as those who say we trust in God, we must remain true to His Word and not to an ever-changing, confused, and corrupt culture. As Christians, we must have the courage to stand by and for the Word of God. We must have an awe and respect for the Bible as God's own revelation to us. And we must submit to its authority over our lives. Then second, if God speaks to us through His Word, then the Bible is always relevant to our lives. Now it's true that some things in the Bible were intended only for its original recipients. God told Moses, not us, to go down to Egypt. God told Jesus, not us, to die on a cross for our sins, but the teaching given all throughout, the principles given all throughout, teaching on God's character, on sin, on moral standards, on the good news of salvation, how it comes to us through Christ, all of this and much more is relevant for our lives today because God is relevant and God never changes. In fact, Hebrews makes this argument in chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You can look at the past, the, the word of God written by your leaders, the prophets, the apostles, others. You can look at their lives of faith. They continue to be relevant. The word continues to be relevant today. Why? Because Jesus Christ never changes. He doesn't change the rules in the middle of the game. 
Therefore, we can know that God not only spoke in the Bible to those who first received it, but He speaks as well to those who read it today. So second, the Bible is always relevant to our lives. Third and final implication, if God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible must be listened to. So do you want to listen to what God says? Do you really? Do you want to hear God speak? Have you ever said in a moment of desperation, uh, oh God, if you'd only speak, if I could only hear your voice, if I, if I could only know your will, if you'd only talk to me and not be silent. I've said words like that. I remember... Uh, one day, just laying on my bed, and I think I was 18, 19, 20 years old, and just begging God, speak to me, God. Speak to me. Make yourself real to me. But I pray I'll, I'll not say those words again. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, make it clear that God has spoken. He's spoken to us. He's spoken to you and me. He's revealed himself. He's revealed his will. He's revealed His ways in His Word. He's spoken to us, and therefore, if we do not hear Him, it's not a speaking problem on His part, it's a listening problem on our part. So when you or I begin to complain that God is silent, and that you need Him to speak to you, at that moment you should stop and ask, have I listened to His Word in the Bible? Have I spent time looking at what is spoken through the prophets and through His Son? As John Piper put it, in this word from God, spoken in the Son of God, is this, sorry, is this word of God, word from God, spoken in the Son of God, so short and simple that I've finished with it, and now I need more, another word? Have I really heard the word of God in the person and teaching and the work of His Son? Is the aching of my soul and the confusion of my mind really owing to the fact that I've exhausted hearing this word and need another word? And the implied answer is, of course not. The problem is not that God's word is ever inadequate, that, that it cannot address our needs and desires and wants. The problem is our listening or hearing, if you will. Either we have not actually heard what God has spoken through the pages of His glorious finished Word. We've not engaged with the Word. The Bible is still on the shelf gathering dust. Or we're, we've heard, maybe, maybe, maybe we've picked it up and read it. Maybe we were in church. Maybe we uh, were listening to the radio. We've heard the Word of God but are unwilling to listen. That is, we're unwilling to accept the word that he's spoken to us. We don't like what he says. Now, if you're unwilling to accept God's authoritative, relevant word for you, then the solution is uh, repentance. Changing your mind, turning in obedience to what you've heard. But if the problem is you need to spend more time hearing, listening to what God has spoken through the pages of his word, then let me conclude with some practical suggestions. I want to recommend several habits to develop as you seek to listen to God speak to you. I give several because I know I need multiple habits 
in my life for listening to God, to listening to Him speak to me in the Bible. Let me leave you with four categories for listening to God's Word. First category, personal direct listening. This is probably uh, most important. This would be your own Bible reading, your own studying of God's Word, meditating on the Scripture. And here are just some practical suggestions for that. Read daily, some amount, some form, some way, some manner. Get an app. There's an app for that, right? Read, if at all possible, first thing in the morning. Set the tone for the day. Slow down when you read as much as you need to so that you're not just reading, but that you're actually comprehending. And for that purpose, I would recommend get a good study Bible. I use the ESV study Bible myself. And actually a couple others, but that's the main one. And a study Bible just is brief, brief commentary that helps you understand some of the difficult things that you don't get if you haven't like studied the whole Bible. Also, set aside extended times of Bible reading where you might even read a whole book of the Bible, giving you an expanded picture of understanding of what God is saying. Then along with reading, take time to, to study, take notes, write down applications, memorize verses, meditate, think about God's Word, and finally pray. Pray before you read the Word, pray during, as you read the Word, pray after you read the Word, pray for understanding, pray as James says, that you will not only be a hearer of the Word, but a doer also. So first, personal direct listening. Second category, personal indirect listening. This would be like uh, things like reading Christian books, devotionals, articles, listening to Christian audiobooks, podcasts. All good, but the thing to consider in indirect listening is the source you are choosing to listen to. Is it uh, what I'm going to call, what I got from John Piper, Bible-saturated? Are those who are writing or speaking, expounding upon the Word of God often and faithfully, or are they just giving you their opinion in a Christian, Christian way? So second, personal indirect listening. Third, corporate direct listening. This may be of second importance, I think, as we gather together in different ways. This would include your gathering on Sunday morning, right now, this is what you're doing, in case you didn't know, gathering to worship together and to hear the Word of God preached. Or when you engage in family devotions, which I pray you do, uh, Bible reading together, studying and prayer with your family or even as a couple. And finally, it includes participating in small group Bible studies, Bible study fellowship, other things, corporate direct listening, and finally, corporate indirect listening. This is the most nebulous, I think. You could call it Christian fellowship. Spending time in conversations, interactions with fellow believers. Not talking about movies or TV or sports or current events or hobbies, which we tend to do. But talking about how God, through His Word, has spoken to each of us. How God is working in and through our lives. This would also involve seeking counsel from a trusted believer who knows God's Word and can speak into your life from that Word. 
So I pray that these four categories will help you grow in your listening to God speak through His Word. You know, look at them, think about them this week. Where, where am I lacking? What can I add uh, into my life as a habit so I can get more of God's Word so I don't cry out, God, why are you not speaking to me? And I would encourage you to take special care to listen for and enjoy what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. For He is God's Word embodied. The Word became flesh, John said. We encounter God Himself through the Word, through Jesus Christ. So let's close today by focusing on Christ and previewing next week's message. Listen to God's Word as it speaks to you about the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he was inher- has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has spoken and God is speaking. And the one word, if it were only one word, he is saying is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. I exhort you to take, to make the time, to develop the habits of hearing God speak about his glorious son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word, for this word from Hebrews. Thank you that we've got to start on this book. And I pray for each one of us. I pray that that you would speak to our hearts about ways to increase our time of hearing from you. Lord, you're speaking. You've given us your word. And it's filled with important truths, insights for our lives. Things that we need to change and do and be better, ways to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, way to come to know Him for those who haven't, Father. So I pray that we would be people of the book, people who read the book and do the book. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Will you please stand with us?